My name's Todd Daly. I'm professor of Urbana Theological Seminary. I'm not the senior pastor here, but occasionally uh, Randy will ask me to preach. He could not be here this morning. Unfortunately, he had to attend a conference in, uh, in Fort Lauderdale. Um, but uh, yeah, we, we should be able to pray him through that. Um, um, yeah, a few weeks ago, uh, Randy sent me an email uh, saying that uh, he would... Uh, he's going to be gone, and that he, he thought that uh, it would be good if I preached the sermon this week on vainglory and pride. And uh, I have to confess, I wasn't really quite sure how to take that request, but um, we, we, we'll, we'll make do. Um, so before, before I say anything more, we should probably pray. Father, take, uh, take my words and sanctify them. And use them for your purpose and for your glory. Amen. Well, several years ago, I had to take an unexpected uh, business trip to Baltimore. I was uh, a computer technician many, many years ago and had to, uh, had to fix a computer at this particular warehouse. And I, I finished that work early and had a few hours to kill before my flight back to Chicago. So I, I took the map out of my rental car and I drove straight out to Memorial Stadium on 33rd Street, the home of the Baltimore Orioles and at that time the Baltimore Colts. The Orioles were my absolute favorite baseball team. I watched them uh, play as a kid growing up in Iowa. Um, I have no recollection of how I came to be an Orioles fan, but when you grow up in Iowa and there are no professional sports of any kind, you, you get to pretty much pick whoever you want to root for. Um, but I remember watching them on TV whenever they would appear on television. I watched them win the 1983 World Series, and I dreamed of the day when I might be actually to, to head out to Baltimore and see them play for real, in person. And so here I am. I found myself unexpectedly in Baltimore with a rental car. Uh, and so I went to Memorial Stadium. Unfortunately, the baseball season was over. Uh, I didn't really care. I thought it would just be cool to drive by the stadium that I'd only ever seen on television and just kind of soak up the aura of this place. And when I got there, I was surprised to see that one of the entrances to the parking lot was actually open. So I got to drive in the parking lot and circle the stadium a few times before I noticed yet another gate open under the left field bleachers, wide open. And I could see that they were preparing the field for a Navy football game. Now clearly, this open gate was a sign from God. So, and uh, to avoid potentially being arrested, I figured I'd just waltz in that stadium like I owned the place. Um, it helped that this was an era when you were still expected to fix computers in a suit and tie. So I looked somewhat professional. I brought along my clipboard and my pen, and I just waltzed right in the place, acting like I was taking notes and observing. Um, I made my way under the bleachers, and I saw all of this old Orioles memorabilia up against the walls. There was a sign depicting the legendary Orioles manager, Earl Weaver, um, just a brilliant manager, but also a hothead. He was evicted from more games than any manager in Major League history, but a brilliant manager. Uh, I had to hide my excitement as I, as I made my way onto the field. It was so astonishing and pristine, I couldn't believe it. But I had to, I had to stay objective. Uh, so I walked along the, the, the warning track and eventually made my way 
to home plate and stood in the batter's box looking out towards center field. One of the big scoreboards in right field just happened to be playing highlights from the previous Orioles season. Um, unfortunately, there were probably only two highlights. But I'm, I, was, I was standing in the batter's box watching Eddie Murray and Cal Ripken Jr., two Hall of Fame baseball players, uh, hit home runs right from where I was standing. Uh, I never in a million years did I ever dream that I would be standing in such a place. Now, I didn't, I didn't want to wear out my welcome. I didn't linger too long, and I resumed my inspection routine you know, making my way, uh, you know, in parts of the field. And as I'm going to the exit, one of the groundkeepers spots me and comes up to me, and I get a bit nervous, and he says, sure looks nice, doesn't it? To which I replied, well, yeah, but you need to check the sideline over here. Um, n- n- not, not really. I mean, I, I, I didn't want to push the roll too far. I just agreed, said, sure does, and made my way out of there before anybody got too suspicious. That's really a story about impression management, right? I played the part of an inspector to win a favorable impression with certain people in order to get where I wanted to go. Kind of sounds like life, doesn't it? We take on certain roles to please certain people in order to get where we need to go. Join the company, adapt to its culture, impress the right people, advance your career. And a core part of this dynamic is dependent on your persona, on how you are perceived by others. You've got to market yourself, right? You you never get a second chance to make a first impression. Okay. You have heard that. I mean, this was, I had the same problem in the first service. I, you're just, that's something that we've heard before. If we don't, if we don't agree on this, we're, this isn't going to connect with you at all. So, um, Well, here we go. Uh, Now, to some degree, yeah, that's true. I mean, we live in a culture that's taken this mantra to unparalleled heights. We are saturated with self-promotion. With reality shows like Survivor, Dancing with the Stars, America's Got Talent, American Idol, we're increasingly concerned with making a good impression, whether or not it reflects who we really are. We're not just trying to look good in front of the boss. We're promoting ourselves to nearly anyone and everyone who will give us the time of day. We've become more adept at self-marketing and impression management. We've become, in a sense, our own brands. What's your brand? In the late 60s, we were told, if you got it, flaunt it. In the 90s, Andre Agassi told us, image is everything. And we've taken that to heart. We transform our minivans and SUVs into billboards for the academic achievements and the athletic exploits of our family. We use the back of our cars to tell people how, we committed, we, how committed we are to our church, what we think of the chief, who we voted for, how far we've run, and even how many members we have in our family, uh, including pets. Now, I realize I've just offended at least a third of us here. Um, I've been fighting this battle, too. Um, We'll just leave it there. Uh, We are bombarded with other questions like, uh, what does your watch or your hairstyle or your eyeliner or the design of your tie say about you? What do your shoes say about you? I even stumbled across an article the other day in a running magazine that posed this question, what messages are your shoelaces sending? 
never really given that much thought, but clearly I need to, need to think that one over. For men and women alike, these kinds of questions transform the mundane hallways and conference rooms and kitchens and street corners into our own red carpet. And with the advent of social media like YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, we are encouraged to portray carefully filtered, better versions of ourselves, presumably because our real selves aren't all that interesting. We have now entered the land of technological no return with this latest marvel. You know what it is. It's camera on a stick. Right? We, we call it the selfie stick. The selfie stick. It encourages us and each and every one of us to be the center of our own world by focusing on how the rest of the world sees us. We are literally splitting ourselves in half with technology. I'm not disputing that there are legitimate uses for technology. Technology is not the enemy. The problem is actually much, much older. It's us. Technology only makes it easier for us to sin. The Desert Fathers had a name for this. They called it uh, vainglory, which is an embarrassingly outdated term in our culture. What in the world is that? They considered this the sin of carrying out our activities to earn the approval of others. And they listed it among one of their seven deadly sins. This is week two, I believe, of the, the seven deadly sins series that we're doing for Lent. It's a, it's a time of reflection uh, on areas of our life that may need more attention. Now, one of the earliest lists uh, of these vices goes back to the fourth century thinker Evagrius of Pontius, um, Randy mentioned that a couple of weeks ago. Originally, there were actually eight vices, but it was eventually shortened to seven. I'm not entirely sure why, uh, but I do know it wasn't because they assumed that eight was one too many or that one of the sins really wasn't all that bad, and so they took it off. Uh, it did have something to do with the number seven uh, being a biblical number. So some lists will contain the sin of pride, other lists will not contain that, but have it listed as a root sin and instead have vainglory listed. Uh, there, there's good reason for seeing pride as the root of all sin. This kind of goes back to the garden, uh, the garden of Eden. Adam and Eve uh, misunder didn't misunderstand God. They deliberately disobeyed God through the sin of pride, the church fathers taught. They thought they knew better than God. Uh, I've got an image, there should be an image uh, coming up shortly, you won't be able to read it, but this is from the 14th century, and it shows pride at the root of this tree of evil or wickedness. In the Latin, uh, pride means, or is translated as superbia, uh, superbia, and it's the root of the seven deadly sins which bear still more bitter fruit. Um, I like this tree imagery, however, uh, because it reminds us that these sins are not merely discrete acts, but they are deep character flaws. Right? A sick tree will not bear healthy fruit. So instead of talking about pride this morning, we'll be talking about the sin of vainglory. And Jesus had a particular message about this sin, directed not to the culture at large, but to us to would-be disciples. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, it's on page 811 in your, your uh, chair Bibles there. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount, one of the most brilliant discourses certainly ever, uh, ever offered. 
Jesus is offering this revolutionary set of new teachings that demonstrate the power and the upside-downness of the kingdom of God. We'll just be looking at the first, uh, first few verses there, starting in Matthew 6, chapter 1. It'll also be up on the screen behind me as well. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right is doing, so your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So this morning we're going to look at um, signs or evidences that suspect that might lead us to suspect that we um, need to do some work in this department. The evidence of vainglory, we're going to look at the, uh, the effects of vainglory, and then finally the antidote. Evidence, effects, antidote. Um, right away this passage makes me a little bit uncomfortable because Jesus assumes that his followers will be engaged in these kind of routine acts of righteousness, including prayer, giving to the poor, and fasting. Fasting is later on in chapter 6, but it fits his pattern of doing things in secret. He's not just aiming at the actions themselves, however, but the motives and the manner in which we are carrying them out. Be careful, Jesus says. It's actually a command. Pay attention to your motives. It's a general prohibition for the disciples in verse 1, warning them not to do their good deeds so that others notice them. Then uh, later on, he gives more specifics on how we can use acts of charity as a guise for recognition or applause. And there he's calling out those who turn religious duties into a PR campaign. In verse 1, we see that vain glory insists on being seen. An even more literal translation there would be, it insists on being noticed. That's just another mantra in our culture. Fill in the blank that gets you noticed. In the second verse, we see vainglory seeks out the praise of others. Jesus uses this metaphor of sounding the trumpet in order to bring attention to yourself. I suspect this is where the phrase, toot your own horn, comes from. And then later on in verse 2, we also see that the location doesn't always matter. It could be in the synagogue or in the alleyway, at church or on Green Street. In fact, one commentator has noted that giving alms in the street may be a way to ensure that you get an even more favorable response from an appreciative beggar who would never darken the doors of the synagogue. And then finally in verse 5, we see that vain glory loves the attention that comes from literally letting their works shine before others. It's interesting that this this word for praise that Jesus uses here is uh, the Greek word doxadzo, from which we get this word doxology, 
the praise, uh, the study of God's praise. Historically, this Greek word for vainglory is a combination of this word doxos with another Greek word that just means empty. Empty praise, empty glory. Paul actually uses this this word one time in Philippians uh, when he tells them to do nothing out of vain conceit. Vain glory is empty praise. Uh, What's its relationship to to, to pride? Um, They're closely related, but not quite the same. Uh, In her book, Glittering Vices, Rebecca DeYoung defines vain glory as the excessive and disordered desire for recognition and approval from others. But she also notes that there is, this is not the same as pride. Pride wants to be number one, to be better than another and inherently values excellence. Pride seeks genuine status. Vainglory, on the other hand, will do whatever is necessary to get the appraise and the applause apart from any pursuit of excellence. Pride relishes genuine status. Vainglory will take it in any form they can get it. If pride is overly concerned with excellence, vainglory is overly concerned with applause. What makes it so pernicious, however, is that unlike some of these more obvious expressions of vanity in our culture, Jesus points out that vainglory can happily coexist with every single good deed we do. Any simple action can be distorted into a prop for self-promotion. The church father uh, Cassian called vainglory a changeable monster of many shapes, attacking the monk according to both the flesh and the spirit. He said vainglory can afflict the monk in his dress, his manner, his walk, his voice, his vigils, his work, his fast, his prayers, his obedience, when he withdraws, when he reads, when he's silent, in his humility, and in his patience. And even if the monk should happen to survive some of these attacks of vanity according to the flesh, vainglory resurfaces as soon as the monk pauses just enough to reflect on the success he is having in being humble. This is why the fathers called getting at, the, getting at vainglory is like peeling an onion. We start digging down through the layers and there's just more and more and more to uncover. Cassian also recognized that you can't solve this problem by running and hiding away at a monastery. Because even when you control your external surroundings, we can always retreat to the inner recesses of our mind our inner life in order to play out these kinds of dramas where we receive unending accolades for our spiritual performances. Okay, now I'm going to inflict one quote from Cassian on you. Um, bear with me. It's, it's not terribly lengthy, but his English isn't exactly, the English translation isn't exactly easy. But I hope you get the sense of what he's talking about. He's talking about vainglory and afflicting the monk. He says, it makes a man, even when alone, sitting in his cell, go round in mind and imagination to make many conversations under the inducements of imaginary exaltations. And so the miserable soul is affected by such vanity as if it were deluded by a profound slumber that is often led away by the pleasure of such thoughts and filled with such imagination so that it cannot even look at things present or the brethren while it enjoys dwelling upon these things of which, with its wandering thoughts, it has waking dreams as if they were true. 
I, found that, I find that phrase arresting, this being deluded as if in a profound slumber. You ever catch yourself talking to somebody um, and you're really not even tracking with what, you're, what they're saying because your mind is somewhere else, but externally you've, you've cultivated the discipline of making it look like you're paying attention? I haven't. I, I just thought maybe you had. As a professor talking to students, that really never happens to me. Um, but there are other avenues where we can retreat to the inner recesses of our mind. One minute, one minute I'm running down Green Street or Church Street uh, with my iPod on, right? And I'm, I'm, I'm just taking in the beauty, I'm talking about Church Street now, of the trees and the foliage. And then the next minute, you know, the song transforms me into a stage of 80,000 fans. And I am the lead singer. And we are, you know, everyone is, everyone's rocking the house, right? Everyone is... And I'm in the center of the stage. Everyone's got their cigarette lighters out. It's one of those moments until the guitar solo comes. And then all of a sudden, I'm a lead guitarist. We've all got our own personal highlight reels that we can replay in our minds at a moment's notice to make ourselves feel better. I've also got a sermon highlight reel. Here's some diagnostic questions to to consider how much work we may need in this area. Um... Because I think this may be more persuasive and pervasive than we think. We've all developed um, fairly sophisticated ways of sounding our own horn without coming on too strongly. But think about these scenarios. Think about what, uh, how we might feel uh, when we're not thanked for showing someone kindness. How, how do we respond when we give to someone in need and they don't even bother to thank us? or presume upon our generosity? Should our joy in that situation be any less full? Ever get irritated, you know, when you let another motorist cut in front of you, and then they don't even give you, like, the obligatory thank you wave? I just let you in. What, you know, just, is, is it going to kill you to, you know, just do this? Ever tempted to exaggerate the details of a story, perhaps in combat, to look more courageous? You know, ask Brian Williams. Do you think he's the only one? How much does being misunderstood really bother you? Especially if the misunderstanding paints you in a less than favorable light. Do you feel the need to put things right? Say you're at McDonald's or Walgreens and you're asked if you'd like to donate a dollar to some charity. Do you say yes because you're more worried about not looking generous? Someone might be behind you who attends Windsor Road. Or do you say no but then proceed to explain why you're saying no because you give so much at church and you support these other charitable organizations and two kids in Malaysia. I call this the George Costanza Syndrome. Some of you may know what I'm talking about. It's the tip jar. Um, you, we need to be, it's not just important enough to tip, we need to be seen tipping. This can take other forms too. Some, some of us are compulsive apologizers. We are so afraid of offending others that we almost adopt a perpetually remorseful state when in reality most of the things that we apologize for don't require an apology at all. But lest we come off as insensitive, we'll offer an apology. I'm sorry if I offended anyone with that uh, recollection. Um, 
Okay, what about the effects? I mean, those are some questions to kind of consider. A little diagnostic test. You know, how much does impression management really mean to me? What more about the effects? What about the effects of vainglory? We already saw in Cassian's quote there that it has the potential to undermine community insofar as a monk can be physically present with another monk, but they can't have any real fellowship because they're off in their own mind preaching their own brilliant sermons. And so Jesus gets right to the point with his disciples. When we give alms, when we pray, when we fast, in order to be noticed, he says, we're hypocrites. Verses 2, verses 5, and you can also uh, skim down to verse 16 where he addresses the same thing, uses the same language. Hypocrites announce their actions with trumpets. They stand when praying to be more visible, and they disfigure their faces to let everyone know how spiritual they are when they're fasting. In the ancient Greek world, this word hypocrite was used for a theatrical actor. It was born in the theater. Actors wear masks in order to play a role. This is precisely why so many church fathers had nothing good to say about the theater. It was considered a den of vice. Why? Because it helps us cultivate the skill of manufacturing appearances. It challenges the notion that the only stage we need to uh, be concerned about is just the stage inside the theater. What happens is that that stage becomes the world stage. And so Tertullian criticized the hypocrisy of this kind of putting on a mask. It's it's kind of an alarming quote, but um, I so enjoy reading the Church Fathers. Sometimes I feel the need to share. And so he said, in regards to the wearing of masks, the author of, all, or the author of truth hates all false, all the false. He regards as adultery all that is unreal, condemning therefore as he does hypocrisy in every form. He will never approve any putting on of voice or sex or age. He never will approve pretended loves and wraths and groans and tears. Well, you know where he stands on the theater, and you know, is it an overreaction? Of course it is. But he recognized the danger far more acutely than we do, I think, of impression management. When we become hypocrites, doing deeds, uh, doing good deeds, rather, degenerates into pure performance. Jesus says that when others do indeed take notice, we have our reward in full. Um, the thought here is that we ought to expect nothing more from the actions that we've conducted. It underscores our limited and short-sighted perspective. Limited and small agendas reap limited and small rewards. And no sooner are we noticed than someone else who's smarter, happier, funnier, has more hair, comes up to divert others' attention away from us towards someone else who's more interesting, or more enlightening, or more fun to be around, or more praiseworthy. When performing good deeds degenerates into pure performance, we get all that we ask for and nothing more. One of the most insightful comments I read on this issue was by actually a secular philosopher who said, Vainglory cares less that I am a moral failure than that I may be a social failure. Vainglory cares less that I am a moral failure than that I may be a social failure. Little surprise then that these fleeting rewards eventually 
quite quickly, leave us empty and hollow. But these actions performed for our attention also more damagingly distort our very character so that this mask becomes more and more a part of us. I mean, isn't this one of the biggest complaints about Christians? That we're plastic, we're fake, we're hypocrites. People are hungry for something authentic. This is why reality television is so successful. That's, uh, reality TV is in itself an oxymoron. I, I recognize it. It's a display of something that only looks authentic. Yes, these shows are carefully scripted and skillfully managed, yet we see elements of honest emotion and raw human expression. The good, the bad, the ugly, all while the camera is rolling. We see real tears that come from hope deferred or dashed dreams, whether it's missing the next cut, getting voted off the island, or heaven forbid, being sent home without a rose. I can't believe I just referred to that show up here. Um, but aren't we any really, aren't we more sincere in the church? Are we really more sincere? I mean, isn't the church supposed to model authentic community? It seems to me at times we become a little too comfortable with our masks on Sunday morning. I mean, if we can't be open and honest about our pain, our suffering, our doubts, our failures, our victories over sin, our failures there, where else, I mean, where else can we expect that to happen? The counselor's office? Yeah, absolutely. Praise, praise God for good counselors. Celebrate recovery? Yeah, of course. Amen. But should it just be only celebrate recovery? What about communal expressions of authenticity on Sunday morning? I mean, it's great and okay. It's wonderful to have shiny, happy, new surroundings um, with warm, inviting colors. But are we always supposed to be shiny and happy people? Is there any place on this earth where the mask can be taken off? Is it ever okay to admit that when uh, I walk in the doors of this church, I find myself wondering whether or not I'm the only one who doesn't have my stuff together? Is it okay to admit that on most Sundays over the last three or so years, it's taken almost every ounce of effort for me to walk in the doors? Anyone else in a deep spiritual valley, like in every sphere of their life, personally, professionally, spiritually, where God seems to have grown distant, where God's voice can't be heard? where wave after wave of troubling news keeps coming, news that's beyond one's control? Well, I, sh I, I hope so, because I just did. Um, I just did. And yeah, I've got a close circle of friends who know all the details, but if we're going to be an authentic community, we need to be willing to take risks. It means being vulnerable. It means running the risk of being misunderstood. It means running the risk of being thought to have a weak faith. See, vainglory hates honesty and humility and authenticity, and it knows precisely how to fight back, even here, right now. 
it's possible to hear that little voice saying, well done, at least you made a shot at trying to be authentic. I bet you'll be more liked now. So what in the world can we do about it? What's the antidote? In verses 4, 6, 17, and 18, Jesus talks about doing these acts in secret, away from the attention of others. He also makes this uh, enigmatic kind of paradoxical comment in verse 3 about the not letting the left hand know what the right is doing. Notice that Jesus does not tell the disciples, stop praying, stop giving, stop fasting. He merely prescribes a different manner in which to carry these out, doing them in secret. Notice that Jesus is not prescribing the kind of secrecy all the time. It's interesting, if you just look over to the next page at Matthew 5, 16, Jesus talks about something that seems to be Exactly the opposite. Let your light shine before others in order that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. So deliberate or disciplined secrecy is only necessary when vainglory is becoming an issue. And Jesus' statement about not letting the left hand know what the right is doing appears to be a way of saying that we should cultivate the discipline of doing our deeds in such a way that they are no longer rehearsed. But how in the world do you make a conscious effort to give unconsciously? How in the world are we to, you know, to love more consciously, uh, but in a way that's unconscious? It seems impossible to do that kind of thing unless we become the kind of people who naturally give to those in need without the least thought to what others think. How can we become the kind of people who by nature no longer care about who's watching when we do our good deeds? How do we cultivate the virtue of humility or a healthy kind of forgetfulness when it comes to the opinions of others? I suspect here that the only way this can happen is to engage in a training program of sorts where we learn very deliberately at first to practice the habit of secrecy. Jesus is inviting us in this passage to some form of spiritual discipline because virtuous behavior comes from cultivating good habits, from practicing spiritual disciplines. And historically, we Protestants have entirely messed this up. Haven't we been justified by faith? Isn't that salvation by works? Doesn't rote learning and practice squelch the spontaneity that comes from the Holy Spirit? Doesn't God really care more about what's on the inside than the external? I mean, those are all common thoughts in the church today. And and that's part of the picture. Um, Here's another one. Shouldn't we just pray that God changes our heart so that righteous deeds will just more freely and naturally flow from it? Now, to some degree, yes. But let me, let me ask this, uh, this question. How hard would one have to pray to become an excellent cellist? Would it be possible to play Chopin's second piano sonata if God just changed our heart to love classical music really, really, really deeply? I mean, really deeply. To play at that kind of level 
as if it were second nature requires years and years of training. Starting with three blind mice, learning scales and chord progressions, focusing on finger positioning, glancing back up at the sheet music, getting the notes wrong, starting and stopping and starting over. And only then, after these are mastered, can you actually really begin to play the music with expression. To become so uh, enraptured in the subtleties of the themes and the movements that the left hand is no longer conscious of the right. Now, if we accept this account of acquiring virtue in playing an instrument, why should things be significantly different in our walk with Christ? especially when Christ himself calls us to practice discipline, a point that is well echoed throughout the New Testament by Paul. You see, virtue is developed from the outside in. When habits have been formed, uh, discipline has done its work, and character is transformed. We'll no longer be so calculating in our efforts, and it will start to become almost second nature. That's the whole point of discipline to cultivate a virtuous character so that the proper motives that may be nearly impossible now will one day flow more easily, almost more naturally. One day we might be able to practice our good deeds in public as if we were in secret. I think Dallas Willard described this uh, wonderfully. Reflecting on this passage, uh, those who have mastered this, these are the people, are, are people who do not have to invest a lot of reflection in doing good for others. Their deeds are in secret no matter who is watching, for they are absorbed in the love of God and of those around them. They hardly notice their own deed and rarely remember it. God keeps no record of wrongs, but we're intent on keeping a record of our rights. So if we find ourselves uh, craving the approval of others in public, maybe we need to seek out specific times of solitude where we put ourselves in a place where the attention of others is impossible, where it's blocked out, closing the door, shutting yourself in a room where we are free from the exhausting work of impression management where we're, we're free to be in God's presence and to perhaps ask some difficult questions and to maybe learn to discover that some of our need to look good in front of others is rooted in a deep kind of pain. Or perhaps we need to set aside specific times of fasting occasionally where we deliberately avoid the empty calories of approval and accolades of others so that we might learn to feast on God. Sometimes the discipline of silence is needed where we deliberately refrain from actively promoting a favorable image through our speech or being so defensive when we're misunderstood. And in this passage, Jesus is inviting us to cultivate this habit of secrecy to free us from the tyranny of always having to be noticed. But that isn't the whole story. We're almost done. Bear with me. Um, that's not the whole story. Because Jesus reminds us in verses 4 and 6, when we do these things in secret, God himself sees us and will one day reward us. 
Not only does God see what is done in secret, but in verse 6, Matthew employs this arresting phrase that our Father is actually in secret. God just doesn't see what we're doing in secret, but this secrecy is marked by God's very presence. And so this entire passage really boils down to one question. Who is our audience? Who's our audience? Are we going to do things to elicit approval from others, having our reward in full, or from God? I want to highlight, too, that it's not that we should avoid seeking approval altogether. That is not the problem. Um, To to think that is to adopt a stoic version of virtue. Uh, The philosopher Epictetus advocated this kind of absolute secrecy when one finds themselves tempted when exercising to seek out spectators so that they can see uh, your displays of athletic virtue. Epictetus says, go work out by yourself uh, where no one can see. And if you're hot and thirsty, go ahead, take a mouthful of cold water and spit it out and tell nobody. That's, uh, it's not that kind. It's not that we're uh, to avoid approval altogether. We were actually made to seek approval. In fact, our desires to please others are rooted in the reality that we have been created in the image of a triune God whose very being is defined as eternal, other-directed love. We are not just created in God's image, but for God. Augustine reflected this when he said in his confessions, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. From this standpoint, we can see sin as disordered desire. Not desire itself, but the disordered desire. Because the desire to please in and of itself is not the problem. It's where the desire is directed. If such a desire is not first and foremost directed to God for his glory, then we sin. And the deep irony about our lives is that we go around seeking approval from others who may or may not give it, doing damage to our souls when we already have uh, the approval from the one from whom it really matters through Jesus Christ, from the one who never takes his eyes off of us. The God who knows all our secrets, who sees the sin and the mess that we make of our lives, invites us into his secret presence to begin healing. The God who listens to our own discordant, clanging, attention-seeking lives, letting us have our reward in full, is inviting us into a life of discipleship where the noisy trumpet of a life is transformed into a beautiful song of praise to the one to whom all glory and honor is rightfully due. So who's your audience? 